Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Troy Halsell, and I'm your host uh, on the New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. John C. Putman. He's a professor of history at San Diego State University, and today we're discussing his book, Boosting a, a New West Pacific Coast Expositions, 1905 through 1916, published by the Washington State University Press. Inspired by Chicago's successful 1893 World Columbian Exposition, the cities of Portland, Seattle, San Diego, and San Francisco all held fairs between 1905 and 1915. From the start of the Lewis and Clark Exposition to the close of the Panama-California Exposition a decade later, millions of Americans visited exhibits, watched live demonstrations and performances, and wandered amusement zones. Millions more thumbed through brochures or read news articles. Fair publicity directors embraced the emerging science of consumer marketing. Conceived to attract new citizens, showcase communities, and highlight farming and industrial opportunities, the four expositions, promotional campaigns, and vendor and exhibit choices offer a unique opportunity to examine Western leaders' perceptions of their city and region, as well as their future goals and how they both fed and tried to mitigate misconceptions of a wild, woolly West. They also expose biased attitudes towards Native Americans, Mexican Americans, Filipinos, and others. Boosting a New West explores the fair's cultural and social meaning by focusing on and comparing the promotions that surrounded them. It details their origins and describes why each city chose to host, conveying the expected economic, social, and cultural benefits. It also shows how organizers articulated their significance to urban, regional, and national audiences and how they attempted to shape a new Western identity. John, thanks for speaking with me today. I appreciate it. Greg, glad to be here, Troy. Awesome. Um, so, so, you know, uh, for anybody who's listened before, we always kind of start off with the same question here for everybody, but how did you come to write this book? Well, this came out of actually uh, research that I was doing for my dissertation, which became my first book, which was a book that focused on uh, Seattle specifically and looked at la- uh, class and gender politics at the turn of the uh, 20th century. And as part of that research, I came across um, the Alaska-Yukon Pacific Exposition. I had not heard of it. Um, but after hearing about it and reading a little bit about it, I realized there was something going on there because, I mean, living in San Diego, um, San Diego hosted the 1915-16 uh, California, excuse me, Panama, California Exposition. And uh, we still have the buildings left over from that event. They're, they make up a major part of the museums in our our central park called Balboa Park. And so I realized there was something going on there that the, you had these two smaller cities, relatively smaller cities, hosting these, uh, you know, these international expositions. And so um, after finishing my first book, uh, I came back to this again and thought about it a little bit more and said, you know, these are pretty interesting uh, look, you know, events, you know, and I wanted to know a little bit more about them. And, and then I started realizing that, you know, they had four of them within 15 or 10 or 15 years on the Pacific coast. And so I saw an opportunity to kind of use that as a vehicle to explore, you know, what was going on in the Pacific Coast at this time, um, what it meant to live here in the uh, along the coast and in the far west in general. 
Thank you for that. Yeah, it probably didn't surprise myself or anybody listening that, you know, the next project is always a thread from a previous one that you wanted to yeah. chase down at a later date. So, 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 yeah, so, so thanks for sharing that. Um, so what, what kind of source material did you use in this, uh, to, to, to research and write this book? I mean, it was a, a combination of a variety of things, of course, some, uh, some archival work, um, uh, I found uh, one of the very first places I, I actually did any research was in Portland. Uh, I got myself a little grant to spend a month in Portland. I think it was around 2003, 2004, um, even though I was still finishing up my uh, first book. And they have a very rich archive. Um, they had records of you know, the president who ran, oversaw it, uh, the people who ran the, um, the event, uh, the Lewis and Clark Exposition. Um, and it really gave you a really deep insight into the day-to-day operations and kinds of things. In fact, I even use a few letters uh, that were unsolicited uh, promotional opportunities, basically, where people would write in saying, hey, I will advertise your uh, exposition. You know, I'll, I'll take my wagon across the United States and put, you know, the Lewis and Clark exposition on the side of it and hand out brochures if you pay me a hundred bucks or something like that. So um, this is a kind of really interesting detail you could get. Um, so interestingly, though, the other three expositions, uh, you know, the records were a little bit more sparse, uh, particularly at that kind of level. Um, so I also added, because I'm looking at promotion, in particular marketing, um, you know, the published materials that they produce are very important. So brochures, guidebooks, handouts, newspaper articles. So I read a lot of different newspaper articles, particularly those that were, um, uh, you know, uh, published in newspapers west of the Mississippi, or east of the Mississippi in particular. Um, But I also looked at uh, um, letters that we see, um, also national magazines. They were very important because one of the things that's happening here is that expositions are trying to reach a national audience. They're trying to find people to come to Seattle or Portland or San Francisco or San Diego. And one of the things they're doing is, is need to reach that audience is um, is to find the easiest, most effective way. And one of those were national magazines like McClure's or the West um, Review of Books and things like that. And these provided uh, a rich set of uh, a marketing kind of ideas because here they're really trying to sell uh, people on these places. Um, so those were the, you know, the, the, big, the big three I really, really used then was some of the archival. I would say a lot of this comes from the brochures and that. Um, because that's really where we see the marketing of these four expositions take place. No, thanks. Yeah, it was it was it was interesting as as I you know was tearing through the footnotes um, as I read the book. Um, just the the sheer amount of promotional materials that you, that you cited seemed kind of like a researcher's dream. It's like, oh, thanks for doing half the work for me almost in a sense that like, like it was just a big source base to, to pull from. And it just kind of took somebody to, to pull it together and to kind of, well, you know, to produce this, this book. So, so, so I found that very interesting. Um, well, I, I think, oh, I think, no, I was gonna say one of the things that's interesting about this is you get, um, uh, you know, obviously you have, Things, first of all, they're typed and everything because they're published. So it makes it actually for research a heck of a lot easier. Um, and I will say that, you know, over the process of the eight or 10 years of doing research for this, digitization changed everything. Uh, you know, because some of these brochures were very difficult to get initially, but now are readily available because a lot of archival material has been digitized. Um, and so I could actually go back and because sometimes I took notes in hand. You know, I didn't have an opportunity to maybe 
copy the brochure so I'd have the right, you know, take notes in hand. Now I could go back and get a digital version of it and read it much more closely, see a little bit more about it. So, um, you know, this, it's changed the way, obviously, uh, a lot of this kind of research is done. You know, it's interesting to talk about the, the digitization. And, you know, so I finished a Ph.D. program in 2018 and, and projects I'm working on now, just three years later, just being able to use digitized stuff and hit control F, uh, you know, when you're going through. And, and it just it, it saves so much time of, A, just having to sit there and go through every single microfilm or kind of do a little smattering here or, you know, being able to actually look at uh source materials so like if, if i was wasn't living in san diego but researching that exposition and i lived here in montana right like i wouldn't have to hoof it down there to kind of start digging through the stuff so you're absolutely right the digitization is a it's a godsend for a researcher it has changed yeah okay well um so so you already touched on it um about a little bit about both the san diego and the um the seattle exposition but why did you choose these four specifically um and that was kind of a question because they look like chronologically kind of on the tail end of I don't know, kind of an era of these things, but I'm wondering if you could tell our, our, our listeners kind of exactly why these four made it into the book. Right. I think that, well, again, being a Western historian, I obviously was interested in the West. There were a couple of others. Uh, uh, there's one in Omaha that I could have also looked at, but I realized I wanted to have some kind of coherency also. Um, the fact, as I said, that these took place between 1905 and 1915, it's a fairly short period. Um, and it's also at a period of the transition of the American West. I mean, we're moving from the 19th century American West, that is, you know, the settlement and early industrialization and expansion of the marketplace there. And here you're beginning to enter, I think, into a more maturing West. You know, this is the beginning of the maturing of the West. Um, it's still, it still has its rough edges. Um, and that's one of the things we'll, we'll get to talk about a little bit later um, that the expositions have to deal with. But these uh, four also offered um, a different kind of perspective of the Far West, that, that the Far West, even though you may be situated on the Pacific Coast, doesn't mean the experience is going to be the same. So, you know, I ended up dividing it into, and I went back and forth in the strategy of how to organize this material um, into the kind of the Pacific Northwest and then the California Southwest kind of uh, approach. And so um, the one, I, always, I will say the one, the one that I may not have included, and it was a decision up to the end, was the San Francisco one, because it is a kind of an outlier. I mean, one thing about Seattle, San Diego, and Portland, these are what we would kind of call secondary cities out west at this time. I mean, there's Los Angeles and San Francisco, and then there's everybody else. Um, and so these cities are competing with the big, big boys here um, try for economic opportunities, trade and everything. And so there's a lot more similarity there where San Francisco kind of was this outlier because it is, it is the premier city of the late 19th, early 20th century West by no one, uh, hands down, not even close. I, mean, it's, I think it was by the, at that point, the fifth largest city in the entire country. So that one I, I went back and forth on, but I, I felt that because it was, as we'll talk about San Diego and San Francisco you know, uh, had a competition over who got the host of the event, um, I thought it was another way to continue to also see that some of the same themes that uh, I look at actually apply across the board to these four expositions. And you definitely unpack that in the chapters, and you're right. Once we kind of get into the more of the meat and potatoes of, of everything, um, I'm sure you'll 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 get, you know unpack all that kind of stuff for us. Um, so, so one thing, and this was. It's kind of one of those things that, as a story, and I'm always always reading, and and so it's not very often where I am 
truly surprised by a past historical event that occurs or a context that shapes something. But one thing that I, I just, and maybe it's because I never studied it, but like it, it really was just kind of advertising. It's a thing that had to be developed. It had to be implemented and refined over time. And so for your book, you situate this at the dawn of like a new era of advertising in the U.S., and I was wondering, can you tell us about what this new form looked like, but then also how it differed from previous advertising methods? Yeah, I mean, what we're seeing here again, is, and this is a national uh, a, a transformation going on, which is, again, as the nation is growing, developing, cr- creating new markets and that, you know, we're starting to see, of course, national firms emerge, um, firms that are no longer just local. I mean, if you go back into the 18th and 19th century, at least the early half of the 19th century, you know, most companies had very limited markets for their products. They were largely the city, maybe the larger region. If they had some waterways, maybe they could reach, if you're on the Atlantic coast, you know, down the coast a little bit. But, you know, they were fairly limited. And, of course, what we're seeing here with the advent of railroads um, and just the expansion of the nation is now and the changes in businesses and mergers and that. We're seeing these national and international firms um, who now need to reach bigger and larger, uh, more markets. Um, and so what we're seeing then is advertising needs to change. Uh, how are you going to reach these farther markets? Because the ad in the local newspaper is not going to reach them anymore. Um, but more importantly, they're also running into the issue of the fact that you, what you have going on is um, the need to create demand for your product. Um, and that's really what the change is going on. It's a fascinating change because you, if you go back and look at advertising uh, up until like the 1870s and 80s, and again, there's no, even no professional advertisers. I mean, they're just people who, it's usually the local printer is also a guy who writes your advertising text, you know. Um, but if you look at the products, what they really focused on was simply the function of the product. What did it do? It solved this ailment, it's, it, it did this. And while that's great, if you have greater growing competition, you need to differentiate your product from others. And so how do you do that? Well, then you have to try to sell it as something doing more than just that function. You know, a pair of pants that covers your lower body. All pants do that. There's nothing different about that. So how do you then sell different kinds of pants? Well, what we see beginning in the late 19th, but really takes off in the early 20th century, is the effort to try to um, create a desire, a demand for that. So now all of a sudden those pants are special. They do something for you other than just cover you. They could be so good good looking that you're going to get more women. I mean, and this is what these ads are doing. There are lots of ads going on. I talk about soap ads in the book, you know, that promise not just to clean your face, but by cleaning your face, they now make you more attractive and you're going to get better mates. Um, And so what we're seeing then in this professionalization also, of advertising is this uh, where now professionals are actually writing the copy. They're coming up with, and what they often like to use was stories to kind of catch you, you know, the quarter page ad on page 19 of the newspaper is not going to catch your attention. So they would create these stories and they would be these elaborate things about how people were transformed by buying a certain product. Um, Listerine was one of the most famous. I mean, Listerine had been around for decades as a product. It basically took care of bad breath. Um, But what Listerine began to do then by the the teens and 20s was develop these stories in order to capture more of the marketplace. And one of the ways they would do this is say, look, they had these ads where you would women would say, you know, before they could never uh, find a mate. They were good looking and everything, but something 
what's keeping them from getting a good a number of boyfriends. And all of a sudden, it's just Listerine. Listerine cleans their breath, makes them more now attractive. And so it's not just solving your breath. It's getting you dates and maybe getting you married. And they do the same thing with shoes, with cosmetics, and all these kinds of products. So what they're focusing in on then is um, the kind of products that are going to do something for the individual. Um, and so the expositions have professional um, marketing of firms and advertisers and others in the business. A lot of the uh, people who run the marketing are, bus- are often newspaper publishers from the local community. Um, and they are part of this transformation of themselves, that they are involved in trying to write different kind of ad copy that is going to capture uh, different market- markets in that. So um, they are trying to uh, emphasize a lifestyle, lifestyle and experience that comes from these products. I think we take it for granted today, you know, that, you know, how do you, how do we differentiate all the cars? You know, something about driving a truck says something about you. At least that's what you're trying to show to people. Because people gravitate toward trucks, they gravitate toward SUVs, they gravitate toward Corvettes. Well, that says something about you supposedly, and you identify with that. And so this is what these uh, advertising is doing is becoming a more professional field. And so we see some of this also, of course, in expositions, because you're selling a product. It's a different kind of product, though. That's what's complicated. They're selling a city. But, you know, one thing about selling a city or a place is how do you show that it works? You know, you can tell me how much soap, because your soap sales go up. But how do you show that this? And, And so it may be a delayed impact, too. It may be that your advertisement or whatever captured the imagination of somebody living in Pittsburgh, but they weren't ready to move yet. But maybe four or five years from now, years after the exposition, they may move to Seattle because they remember that ad and it, it promised a different kind of lifestyle and experience. Um, and so this is what advertising is attempting to do here is to try to motivate people. Because then again, a capitalist society, we must, we must buy goods. For things to, for this to continue, and you must therefore move from a a culture that emphasized living within your means. I mean that was that was the thing in the 19th century America. You, you, you had a good character if you were thrifty, and that. Well, today we don't we don't support or celebrate thriftiness. You know, we celebrate people who consume, uh, and so this is where we're moving into consumer marketing, uh, um, and that's what's happening in the early 20th century. Well, th- 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 thanks for that. You know, and it was it, it's a perfect segue to, to the next uh, kind of set of questions here. And and so for um, for our listeners, uh, so John he, he divided uh, the, the core of the book up. He, he had three chapters on the Seattle and Portland exposition, and then three on San Francisco and San Diego. And and in each chapter, um, they were he talked about. Either they're selling a promise, they're selling a land slash landscape, but then also ideas of race and empire. And so I don't have quite the best way to to ask this question, but I feel like a comparison, you know, answer might be a way to, to kind of get at some of the stuff here. But um, could you kind of kind of walk us through this the selling of the West, right? This boosting of this new West, right? And so I guess we could kind of start with those two chapters on selling the promise. So so what were these the North the, the Pacific Northwest and the California expositions, what was this promise that they were selling uh, to consumers throughout the United States? All right. So I think for, the first thing to understand here is is to, is to understand the larger context in which this is taking place. 
again, America in the late 19th, early 20th century is undergoing a lot of transformation and change, some of it very painful. Labor conflict and strife that is striking the country from the East Coast to the West Coast. Great, massive urbanization, and of course with that urbanization comes problems, you know, overcrowded cities, uh, pollution, we have massive immigration, of course. This is the period of great immigration from Eastern and Southeastern Europe in particular. And, um, and so the message is that the, all four expositions are attempting to do is to reach to those people who may be troubled, if not disturbed by what's going on in their own cities, their own life, and offering an alternative. So that's ultimately what they're, they're attempting to do. Now, what they're trying to sell then in this promise is look to you laborer or to you businessman who's struggling, uh, this is the land of opportunity. I mean, it's nothing really new in the history of the American West. I mean, the West is all, you know, go West, young men is where you started over. But they are selling a particular kind of economic opportunity, um, both agriculture and urban. This is what's interesting about this, because we don't really, we associate this period of the early 20th century with the kind of rise of urban America and the demise of rural America. But it really, until the mid 20th century, you know, farming was a, still a major uh, employer of people. I mean, today, what I think is less than two percent of Americans are farmers, or something like that, because we have massive corporate farms. But we're still in a period of the family farm, um, and so a lot of people still live in these small communities, these small villages, um, and so they may be in a in a situation where the markets are drying up; they can't compete with the growing corporate farms. And they're told, hey, come to the Pacific Northwest. We have ample land uh, and you can grow a variety of different crops. You're not going to be stuck growing just corn or just wheat. You can if you so wish, but we have other alter opportunities for you. Um, and with that comes a different lifestyle, too. Um, and one of the things that particularly in Southern California, and we see this build throughout the early 1900s. I mean, there's a in the, early 19, in the early 1900s, there was a commission that Teddy Roosevelt had put together called the Country Life Commission. And this was a commission to study why are people leaving rural areas? Why are those kids not staying on dad's farm? Um, you know, and it was a variety of factors. It was the economics, but it was also the lifestyle. Hey, urban America was sexy and, and attractive. You know, that's where the movies were. That's where you could go to see a movie in the early 1900s. You could go to stores. You know, you weren't sitting on a farm of 500,000 acres where your nearest neighbor was miles away. And, you know, you got to see them once a week on Sunday at church. And so this was not attractive to kids. They were looking at these new opportunities. Um, and so um, this commission was trying to figure out how to mitigate this transformation, this change and make country life better. Um, and out of that came this kind of at the same time, this growing urge, what we call the back to the land movement. Um, you know, people were getting tired of the cities. They didn't want to live in the grime and the, and the crime and all the other kind of crowded conditions. And the idea of moving back or moving with your own to a little farm uh, with fresh air and everything, this was becoming attractive. Um, the question then was, uh, they didn't want, they didn't want to do was move back to a farm of a thousand acres because it was too isolating. That was the problem of rural America. And so economic opportunity was, of course, the, you know, one of the great promises. And, and look, these expositions, that's their foremost goal. Let's understand. The four cities are trying to attract people and capital to their communities. Growth is progress. If you're not growing, you're not progressing, 
you're dying off. Um, and there's a lot of competition among these four cities. These are major ports, all four of them are, and that's another thing they share. Um, and so they are tapping into this, this growing industrial America. We're becoming a global economic power by this point. Um, and they're seeing that, hey, we can provide you a lot of what you, the good of back east without all the bad. You know, we're going to provide you healthy living conditions. We're going to provide you more economic opportunities to, to grow different kinds of crops in that. And so Southern California is doing the same thing. Um, I think the one difference is by the time 1915 rolls around, um, there's even more anxiety, let's say, about the future of agriculture. Um, and so what they do in San Diego is they are able to put together not just series of articles or descriptions of what you can do and can't do. They actually create a model farm in Balboa Park, you know, and says this is a farm that you can actually make a good living off if you come out here to California. And, and because your farm can be five or seven acres large, your neighbors are going to be close. And because your neighbors are close, you're dense, it's going to have, there's going to be villages and community and cities nearby, you know, and so you have the best of both urban and rural America. And that's really what they're promising, I think, uh, at the foremost, is you're going to get a little bit of, that, of both, but the best of both. And in a time when people are deeply troubled about what's going on in the country, this does look promising to them. You know, it was, it was, it, I kind of chuckled to myself at a couple of points in the book, and it was, it was, you know, as I'm cracking open the book, I was like, you know, I haven't heard of in a while, Frederick Jackson Turner. I haven't seen his name in a while, right? And then lo and behold, the Frontier Thesis, I think, actually underpins a lot of uh, some of the anxieties and stuff that that's, uh, that people are feeling at this time. That's an aside, but it just popped into my head no, no, <laughs> as you were talking there. I think that's very important because, in fact, I start both of those chapters off, I believe, with references to this, um, articles that are still describing the Far West and the American West in general as the wild and woolly West, the, you know, rough, you know, the, the you know, bump, bumpkins out there, you know, who daily have to worry about Native Americans or Indians killing them and that kind of stories. And these stories continued to resonate despite the fact by the, by the turn of the century, Native Americans have been relegated to reservations and isolated from the rest of the white community surrounding them for the most part. Um, but there's still these images and stereotypes of the West. And this is part of what the exposition's goal is, is to try to, how do we, how do we dismiss that? How do we get people to see the West as something different than that? Because if they feel threatened going out West, they're not going out West. You're not going to a place that's unsafe, dangerous, backwards. You want to go to a place that's better. And so that's part of what they're trying to do in selling the promise is that we have gone past this. But as I point out, one of the ironies of this is the expositions themselves need to make money. Investors have poured money into the. This is not done by the government. This is done by private investors who raise money. They want to at least break even, if not make a profit. And they realize that for many Americans, one of the attractions of the West is the are the Native Americans, are uh, is this other kind of dangerous exotic world that they associate from the dime novels that they're reading. Also, Americans are going to. Uh, Wild West shows, I mean, which were very popular throughout the country, throughout the world. I mean, Buffalo Bills in, in England, I think he does two shows for the Queen uh, over, over his lifetime. And these Wild West shows, of course, perpetuate the stereotypes. You know, they're full of Native Americans tacking white folk, and particularly white women. Um, and then some guy like Buffalo Bill Cody comes in and saves the day, you know. And, and so people, if they don't have anything else that's what they're going to think the West is like. You read a novel, 
You'll watch a Buffalo Bill. Even the earliest Western movies are basically movie versions of Buffalo Bill stories. And so the expositions have to uh, confront this. Um, and so that is one of their, their primary duties. And of course, Frederick Jackson Turner, um, his thesis about the demise, in a sense, of the frontier is um, part of the story because the frontier played a much greater role than just a place to live. Now, according to Jackson, Frederick Jackson Turner, at least, it was a place of, you know, where democracy was reinvigorated. It was the safety valve. That's why we didn't have a lot of labor conflict and labor issues until this period, until the demise of the frontier, like let's say industrial England did. Um, that's what made America an exceptional. And, but now all of a sudden, if he says the frontier is gone and people are, oh my God, where are we going next? You know, um, what's going to save us? And so that added to these underlying anxieties about the turn of the century America that um, makes, this, makes the West so important to the larger story of the country. Well, it's going to stick with um, the, the concepts of, uh, of, uh, of kind of race and the, the chapters on race and empire, since you already mentioned um, how these expeditions handled the, <laughs> to the best they could these, these competing ideas. So, so what was it? So, so you, you already kind of well, actually you already kind of touched on the race aspect of it, but can you talk a bit about that empire aspect of these two chapters and how these expositions? Because because you did tie it, you know, as our maybe. To be fair, it was several weeks since I finished the book, but like I know that you, you ended up tying kind of broader empire to also money making possibilities. And I wonder if you can just talk, walk our readers through uh, some of that sure. with with both uh, the Northwest and the California ones. Yeah, again, we have to put it in the context of uh, what's happening. Of course, as part of this emerging global market that the United States is part of, um, is there's competition in the in the larger world between you know places like France, Great Britain. Uh, you know, uh, Germany and others who, this is the time of imperialism. They're out carving up markets, getting control of Southeast Asia and other places. The United States, of course, has a very aversion, aversion towards that kind of traditional colonialism, as we would call it, because we were, of course, a colonial uh, oppressed people by the Great Britain. And so imperialism itself, well, what's happening in the late 19th century is America is beginning to exert itself beyond its own borders. And the first opportunity they get is the is the war uh, with Spain, with Cuba, and, but also, of course, includes the Philippines. And so the capture of the Philippines by the turn of the century, which is just before the Lewis and Clark Exposition in Portland, uh, has now made the Pacific more important. One of the primary reasons American leaders wanted to keep the Philippines was it was a staging place for more economic markets and imperialism in Asia. I mean, everybody's to this day still dreams of the China market. You know, the, that is still part of this. This is where it begins, this idea of unlimited sort of consumers um, and source of products and that. And so for the Pacific Coast cities, they're the closest to these new markets. I mean, the old market's the Atlantic. That's getting played out a little bit, many people believe. The future is going to be the Pacific, the Pacific what we call Pacific Rim today. Um, and so the Philippine, the, the war with Spain and the U.S. capture of the Philippines becomes part of the story then, that um, the economic future is going to be with this growing, supposedly unlimited trade. And who best is the staging point for the nation are the Pacific Coast ports. The products are going to come into, the, uh, into Portland, into Seattle and go out of those cities. And the same with San Francisco and San Diego. So they, uh, the future of the country, they believe, 
going forward is tied to the Pacific and they are the major communities or cities on the Pacific. So um, this then is going to raise the level of significance. And this is partly why we think that, you know, Congress is going to support some of these expositions. They provide, you know, some money and other kinds of support because they also see the advantage of, uh, of the economic potential. San Diego and um, San Francisco also, of course, have another layer of this, which is the Panama Canal. The completion of the canal in 1914, and that's why the, they're both titles of the expositions have Panama in it, is they saw the canal as that next step to, in a sense, world commercial supremacy, if you want to call it that, that the canal would now shave off months and thousands or millions of dollars in transportation fees. And if as products came up the Pacific coast, they're going to hit California first. In fact, that was San Diego's selling point. Um, San Diego is interesting because when it hosts, hosts its exposition, it's a city of about 40 to 50,000 people. It's the smallest exposition city. Um, and it's remarkable that they're able to put this on. Um, I think part of it is they get support from Los Angeles too. LA doesn't host want to host one, but San Diego is willing to. But San Diego's selling point was we're the entrepot of the Southwest. All those railroads that are being built in the Southwest can all end in San Diego and carry those whatever commercial goods through San Diego port down to the canal and out to the rest of the world and vice versa. Products coming in will come in through San Diego's port because San Diego is the first northern port north of, excuse me, the first port north of the canal in the United States. And so um, both of the, both sets, you know, both the Northwest and the Southwest see that Pacific uh, commercial opportunities and they're, emphasizing that in their expositions. Um, they're talking to us, they're pointing out in the promotional material that this is going to be where future economic growth is going to take place. Um, and this is why we must pay attention to these four cities and the, and the region itself. As you're talking about San, uh, uh, San Diego there, I, I kind of had a, something popped in my head that I don't think you have mentioned in the book here, but did um, the naval the naval presence in San Diego, did that come after these expositions um, or was that something that was ongoing? Because I guess my, my brain just kind of went, you know, did the expositions kind of help pull the Navy to set up shop in San Diego or were they already there or were they unrelated? And that's just kind of something I was thinking. Right. No, I mean, they were, they, they were there. I mean, part of it, of course, was that uh, the, uh, the war in the, with the Philippines was, of course, short. But nevertheless, it, you know, we, we, they were beginning to establish a naval presence, a small one in the, on the Pacific. But the, the success of the San Diego uh, Exposition draws, again, more attention also to the potential. Um, obviously, it also takes place during World War I, and so, which was complicated the California Expositions because they're taking place during a time of war. And these expositions are, are, see themselves as international. They're trying to draw not just... Uh, companies from California or from you know Pennsylvania or New York to showcase their goods. They want the world's nations to do the same, and the war cuts a lot of that off because you know Great Britain doesn't have time to be worrying about expositions and selling their products when they're in the midst of a you know a slaughterhouse in, in Western Europe. So um, it, the timing does help because it brings more attention to California. California, San Diego, I should say, also able to sell this. Uh, uh, as a place where the Navy can also have a presence. Um, and so I think they, they do feed off each other. 
Okay, th- th- thanks for that. That was just something that popped in my head as, as you were sure. talking there. Um, so, so, so last question. You already touched on some of it uh, on the chapters selling the land, you know, and then in parentheses landscape. And so, I wonder if you could t- you tell our readers a little bit about that, both sure. what the expositions are trying to overcome, right? But then also what they sell, you know, quote unquote, sell to try to overcome ideas about the West at this time. Right. I think there's 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 a couple layers to this. One is. Um, the emphasis on open territory out west. So when I talk about selling land, um, actually being actually selling the land. Um, and so part of the selling point they have is, look, out west, we have plenty of land for farmers. You don't have to, comp- you know, and it's cheaper because we have plenty of it. Um, so if you want to remain a farmer, you want to go back into farming or start farming, if ever, you can come out here. And if you go to San Diego, you can actually have a orange grove. Um, that produces a great deal of money uh, and a small piece of property, largely. So part of it is reaching out to those that urbanizing area out east saying, yeah, you don't want to live in that anymore. We have a different kind of lifestyle. Um, But the other thing they're attempting to also have to do is to demonstrate as much as possible that by moving to San Diego or Seattle or Portland, you're not losing much from the city. Because cities do have benefits. Um, and so they, they spend a lot of time. And if you look at their brochures, often their brochures have lots of pictures. You know, they like to use photography. And they'll have pictures of beautiful scenery and then interspersed the bank, the local national bank, um, a, a big church. And part, what they're doing there is to say, look, you can come back. You can live in San Diego and you're still going to have not only if you don't want to live in a farm, you can live in a bungalow on a nice street with a palm tree, a couple orange trees in the backyard, um, and paved roads, uh, museums, banks, you know, uh, hotels, some of the best. And so they're simply saying, we have, we are sophisticated and we have, we are just as developed as the East. So one of the fascinating things about the American West at this time is, and some have written about the colonial thesis, as they call it, this, this sense that American that Westerners have a kind of inferiority complex, that they somehow don't measure up to the East. The East is the location of big companies, of, of culture, of power, you know, and government and everything. And the West is the wild, woolly West with, you know, frontier land. And they're trying to, they're trying to, to confront that and say, no, 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 no. We have, we've got past that. We have some of the best amenities you're ever going to find. The other thing they're selling when we talk about land then is the beauty also. They're, again, confronting this uh, this image, not the image, but essentially the perception out east, that, you know, it's the concrete jungle. You know, uh, they, have to, they have to carve out playgrounds in their inner cities to find a, a green space. You know, you have Central Park and that's it, you know, kind of New York kind of thing. So here they say, look, you can live in San Diego or Portland or Seattle, even San Francisco, and within a, within a half an hour, be in the mountains. Uh, you know, be at the beach if you're in Southern California. Um, you can be in Mount Hood in Portland, uh, right there, or Rainier. You can see from downtown San Seattle. When I was doing my research there, I got out of a, a motel one day and I looked up and I got it. There it is, because it happened to be one of those clear days when the clouds are not obscuring Mount Rainier. And, um, and so they, they tried to emphasize this as a place of healthy climate, too. So that's part of the, the West Coast lifestyle they were also selling, which is you're not giving anything up, but you're gaining. You're gaining a healthier place. You can go out and fish. You can hunt. You can just hike in the trails. Um, and this is going to make you stronger, more healthier. 
or you can live in Pittsburgh with soot flying on you every day from the from the you know the oil and the steel and everything else. Um, and so part of it is selling it to families too. This is a great place to raise your kids. And so the the brochures always talked about the schools, how many schools they had. You know, e expositions even put on exhibits showing the curriculum and the, their local schools. You know, the kind of classes you took, the kind of books they read. They would showcase things that the kids produce, artwork essays and that, look, our kids are just as smart as yours, in a sense. You, you're not giving anything up by coming out here. So when we're talking about the selling the landscape, I think the other thing there, in order to do this, is they have to also overcome, particularly in the Southwest, but even in the Northwest to a certain extent, another misperception, though it's somewhat correct, which is this is a desert, and particularly Southwest is a desert. Um, deserts are places of brutal heat, of wiltering plants and death, basically. And that's what people perceived of deserts. Nobody wants to live in the desert kind of thing. And so irrigation is the salvation for all of this. And so all four expositions, because east of the Cascades, it's, it's, it's dry. It's not, it's not as wet it is in Seattle as it is in Pullman, let's say, or vice versa, I should say. And so part of it is that irrigation is going to allow you and this region to overcome any of its weaknesses, particularly climate in that case. And so that you can, because of irrigation and access to plenty of water, which is being built by the national, by the federal government this time, all the reclamation projects and that, and the state governments to a certain extent, you can water your fields or your orange grove uh, cheaply and easily and allows you to grow more food on a smaller plot of land, allows you to have a small farm where you don't have to be so isolated. So all these get tied together. And then lastly, of course, they're emphasizing the climate. Um, you know, interestingly, I think it was Portland um, had to fight this idea that somehow it's just a rainy place. Everything rains all the time. And so they would put in their brochures the average rainfall per year and compare it to New York and Massachusetts and that, which actually has more rain per year than Portland or Seattle by far. But again, it, there it comes in smaller waves. And here in Portland, it's a lot of mist for months out. And, you know, if anybody, you know, people who live there know you can go weeks without seeing the sun for a while. So, but again, they wanted to say, look, this is a place that is, uh, gets plenty of rain, but not too much. Um, it has healthy air uh, because we don't have a lot of manufacturing. Um, and you can, for the most part, live year round. And that's what San Diego emphasized in particular. It's the only uh, exposition that has year round operations. Even San Francisco closed for the, at the end of December. Uh, so they opened, I think, from February to December. San Diego opened January 1 and actually stayed into a, a second year straight. Um, and the idea here was this is the only location where you could have a year-round exposition um, interrupted by a few days of rain here and there. But otherwise, you know, it gets into the 60s, in a, a, a cold, low 60s for the most part. It's the coldest times. And so this was part of their selling point, too, which is, you can escape the brutal climate of the Northeast or the Midwest. You don't have to sit through four months of heavy snow and that, but you can still have everything else out here. So the landscape was and land itself was central to how these Westerners saw themselves. I mean, I think that's part of the story too, you know, because we can learn a lot about how Westerners thought about some of how they portrayed themselves, you know, what they portrayed, what was good uh, about the region. And so they saw these things as beneficial and they said, well, the nation could benefit from this too, um, if you come join us. You know, it, it's interesting as I was reading the uh, the book, um, a lot of the 
the themes and even um, maybe not the methods because the delivery method is going to be different, you know, in present day. But I just always think about, you know, the Great Falls, Montana Chamber of Commerce and their Visit Great Falls website. Right. And in this this image that they're selling of Great Falls, Montana, you know, they call it the base camp that it's, it's where you fly. It's not as cool as Bozeman. It doesn't have the skiing of Whitefish or the music of Missoula. But if you want to, you know, experience Montana cheaply and get to, you know, all the different kind of landscapes and opportunities, you do it in Great Falls. And so it's interesting just how, you know, how cities today, and I'm I'm just thinking of where I live now in the West, sells itself to people who aren't from here. Because as someone who's lived here for three years now, I go to the website and I was like, that sounds like fun, but that's not how the city really is. You know, (laughs) kind of your day-to-day life. Not to say that what they're saying is disingenuous or false, but it's not... Like this, they got this glowing photo, just this vivid, beautiful photograph of of uh, Gibson Park on the Missouri River. It's lush, it's green, and I tell you what, I've gone to wherever that photograph was taken, and I've yet to see it that green or the sunlight that <laughs> that, that, that right. Um, and so, so it just it just it could be boosterism in general that I'm taking away, but specific to Western stuff that, you know, even today, and this could be true across the U S but, you know, more so here in the West that like, I'm still seeing these methods, you know, the fundamentals still at work. And, and I was quiet. I was like, man, it's a hundred plus years later. And it's still going strong on that stuff. Well, I mean, this is the age of where tourism really becomes an activity. Um, You know, people, particularly for the masses, I mean, and that's one of the larger stories that's going on here because of industrialization and the economic growth of the country. You get a, you get more leisure opportunity. It filters down not just from the elites. Remember, and the thing about the elites, they always went to Europe. They didn't go west. Uh, but now all of a sudden, because people earned more money, you had this middle class of managers and others who had you know, disposable income and time. Um, and with railroads and even the car now, they could access places that were never available to them before. Um, and so part of what's happening here is these communities, of course, as I said, there's a competition here. Portland says it's better in Seattle. Seattle says it's better in Portland. San Diego says it's better in everybody. And San Francisco says we're best in everything, you know. And of course, any advertising comes with a lot of exaggeration, you know. So I think we, and that's why we, when we look at this, we have to go also say, well, you know, clearly they are going to sell only the finest points. They're not going to talk about the downside, you know, or anything like that. Um, and even when they deal do with it, do deal with it. For example, uh, race out west, which we kind of talked about before. Um, they have to. They want. They know they have to address that because that was a down point for many. The West was too diverse, uh, uh, particularly dangerous Native Americans. Because again, Buffalo Bill said that they were still out there, according to him, you know, kind of thing. And so one of the one of the key aspects and you know, one of the things that was most difficult for me to write about, too, because of dealing with race is always too, it can be problematic and tricky was how to deal with this, because, you know, you have these images, you have this the, the brochures and that how they portray groups. And you want to make sure that you don't fall in the trap of just ha- trans- handing that off to the reader without any sign of, well, let's look at this carefully, because, you know, for example, Native Americans, they would talk about. You know, they needed to have Native Americans to attract people, frankly, too. They knew that, you know, Native Americans were a double-edged sword for these Western boosters and that. Um, they want to show the country that it's a safe place, that Native Americans aren't a threat like the books they're reading or the shows they're going to, 
But at the same time, they don't want to show them as extinct because th that exotic nature, however right or wrong, is an attraction to tourists who go, yeah, I can go out west and, you know, get a little nature, you know, by going out and actually see a Native American. So San Diego puts on this massive village, 300 Native Americans from the Southwest, Pueblo Indians mostly. They build, they come here, they help build the, the their living area and they stay in there and, you know, basically they perform by supposedly being authentic. And that's where you really get this very interesting thing. How authentic is this? Because when I mean, there are stories and you see newspaper articles where on the weekend, some of the Native Americans would leave the exposition grounds because there was their day off. They're employees, frankly. It's not like that's the way they, you know, and they would go down and put their money in the bank. You know, so they're walking in there in regular clothes, putting money in the bank. They would go down and uh, one of them wanted to drive a car and let him drive a car. And so, you know, it, it belied the, the, the stereotypes. But so the expositions have to write a fine line, strike a balance about how they portray them. And so what we see from Portland all the way through San Diego is this one on one side, Native Americans, at least in the exhibits, are portrayed as primitive. But um, they also have conferences and conventions there. And one was the Congress of Indian Educators showed up to Seattle, for example, 1909. Big conference, all these experts around. And they talked about how they were assimilating, acculturating, transforming Native Americans, going to the reservations. And, and so one way to demonstrate this is they the Native American uh, groups would come on and sing at the at choirs. Um, they had a traveling women's basketball team, you know, in North in Portland that traveled around and actually won a lot of games. Uh, um, they dressed in gingham dresses, you know, so they looked like, you know, the white girls in a sense. And this was all the way to kind of, so look, you know, they're here. Yes, but they're not a threat. Um, and so they're trying to strike a balance there because they don't want to leave people with the image that Buffalo Bill does, but they also real, want to realize that you know, Native Americans are part of the larger landscape of the West, um, but they're not going to be a threat to you. You know, Asians a little bit more complicated. I mean, that's, uh, that's part of the story too, because when you open up the Pacific to trade in that, you're, you're gonna create two-way you know, conduits to these places. Um, and so, the business leaders and others in many of these communities were quite cognizant of how the Chinese and Japanese were being portrayed, particularly the Japanese. Now, Japan had defeated the Russians in the Russo-Japanese War in 1905, and that changed everybody's attitude about the Japanese and the, among Western world leaders, let's put it that way. Um, and so they, they're very careful not to show them in, in too primitive a way and they allow these countries to bring their products to showcase their educational and commercial uh, activities um, to show that they have something there because these are going to be trading partners. You know, they don't want to turn off them. Um, but in some cases, they did. Uh, you know, um, the Chinese were very reluctant to um, participate in Seattle's uh, exposition because they didn't like the way that in Portland they were being portrayed as kind of the, the celestial people, the, you know, this kind of you know, almost 16th century view of the Chinese. So they weren't modern any, at, at all. Um, and so, you know, they said, we're not going to participate much. Uh, in fact, they didn't even put on exhibit. They had to call on local Chinese Americans to put up the Chinese exhibit, uh, you know, with the, with the, you know, the traditional architecture and other kinds of things. Um, San Francisco uh, and San Diego had something called Chinatown under, uh, Underground, 
which was this. So when you went to the exhibit areas, you saw the greatest the greatness of China and Japan and that, and particularly China. Um, but then you went to the uh, the midway, which was the, basically the fun zones of all these places where these commercial activities where people made money and they would put on one of them was the Chinatown underground, which was this place where you walk in and you would be taken to an underground opium den. This is what Chinatown is really about. It's opium dens and slave girls and so on and so forth, you know, and the Chinese officials in particularly San Francisco got deeply offended by this. And they said, no, we keep, we don't want this, you know, um, they were so important that the operators of the exposition there shut it down. San Diego didn't because the Chinese had ignored the Ch San Diego, the, uh, the businessmen and others. They largely did nothing. So San Diego said, well, well, that's okay. Then we're not going to shut it down because it's making money. It's drawing people. People are coming to the fair because they want to go to this exhibit. Um, and uh, there was nothing to mitigate that because the Chinese influence was weakened there. Um, and I think the last thing it would be, you know, the portrayal of the Filipinos, which was the most problematic uh, and disturbing, I think, of of this, because, you know, the Philippines had been captured and there was a debate in the country of whether the United States should hold on to the Philippines. It went against the grain of American ideals. You know, you're you may not be colonizing them, but you're still oppressing as holding them as a colony, a territory, however euphemism you wish to use. And so at particularly at the Portland and Seattle expositions um, in that first 10 years after the war, um, Filipinos, they, the uh, groups of them would go to the Philippines and bring back the most native ones they could find, various tribes. And there's multiple tribes in the Philippines. Um, and they would put them on in a live display, the Igorot villages, it was called. Um, and they would be dressed in loincloths uh, eating dogs, and they were running jokes in the newspaper about the dog-eating Filipinos and things like that. And the message was being sent was, look how backwards the Philippines. This is why they need American presence. We would be doing them a disservice by leaving. We're edu we're uplifting and educating them, and that goes on for about ten years. Um, you know, and uh, even though local Filipinos had migrated here already, they were. Many of them objected to this, of course. They did not want this image of themselves in, in this kind of real narrow view. Um, but it became a way, again, of justifying the American empire, which is, you know, we have no we, we have an obligation here. Um, uh, and, you know, they are behind even Native Americans in acculturation and assimilation and that and civilization. And therefore, they need to be held, educated. And the only way to do that is American presence to maintain itself there. So. Um, there's a couple questions left here uh, b before we wrap up. Um, it, one thing, and I, I don't know if you said it or not uh, in the book, but did you ever get a, an idea of exactly how many people came and saw these expositions? Because cause the thing that's kind of going through my head was given what it took to get to um, – you know, Pacific Northwest, Southern California, like kind of stuff, right? Is that it, it's not like me loading up the family and then hightailing at five hours to Spokane, Washington. You know what I mean? It's just, so I'm kind of wondering, like, like, what were the numbers and like, where were these people coming from? Because I, I was wondering, you know, if they're selling the West to the rest of the U.S., but it's mostly folks already on the West Coast going, you know, did it did it do what it was supposed to do, right? And, and I'm, I just. Just if you had anything that could clarify that, I was very curious. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, we look at the pop, we look, we look at the turnstiles, you know, 
And um, uh, Portland, they got two million. I think Seattle got three million. Uh, San Francisco, I think, ended up with eighteen million. Now, admittedly, uh, by far a majority, a majority of those are from the region. You know, who could travel, let's say, from San Diego to San Francisco or Portland? There, um, we do know from uh, uh, and some rough level numbers of you know, of those tra- who travel on the trains westward. One of the things the expositions attempted to do was to try to encourage people by encouraging them to make that trip was to show that there were other things to do even on the way. So if you were going to the Northwest, you, it was the obligatory stop at Yellowstone. And they would say, look, you, yes, it's going to cost you whatever amount. And again, you know, railroads were not cheap, but they weren't that expensive anymore because you have a lot of competition. Um, yeah, it's not the working class that are coming, clearly. Um, it's the middle, upper middle class and the elites and that. But you can say, look, if you come, uh, you can stop at Yellowstone. Everybody wants to stop at Yellowstone. You know, old, you know, old faithful. Um, if you're coming through the southern route to San Diego or even San Francisco, you stop at the Grand Canyon uh, and see the magnificent canyon. And it doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. And, and even when they would, and they're advertising, they would say, even when you're here, you know, you can go off on a short day trip to Portland, if you're living in Seattle, if you're at the Seattle, you could go to Mount Hood. Um, if you're in San Francisco, day trip to Yosemite. Now you've got another, you know, thing. So they were very good at trying to say, look, more bang for your buck, in a sense. Yes, it's going to cost you this amount. So on that level, in terms of those that actually came and witnessed the experience, that's one thing. But of course, the advertising reaches a lot of people, national magazines, Newspapers, you know, the brochures—they send millions and millions of, do- of of pieces of brochures around the country, and so there were very few Americans, let's put it this way, that lived in any mid-sized or even small town in America. They didn't know something about these expositions. They may only get one or two articles about it, but if they they you know they subscribe to you know McClure's, they had sometimes multiple articles, sometimes special issues devoted to, simply to the fair. So I think there's two things going on here. Part of the advertising is doing its thing. It's at least reaching now, whether it's convincing them to come here. That's a whole different ballgame. As I said, that is the almost impossible to measure because unless you can trace people, you know, um, you know, did they move within five months of an exposition or something like most people can't move that fast anyways. Even today, it's hard for us to move that fast. Um, you know, back then it would be a year or two process. You would have to you know, prepare, sell your home, figure out where you're going to go, so on and so forth. Um, so yeah, I mean, the success of the turnstiles clearly is driven by locals and those in the region and the people know that too. And in fact, in many of the places they would, um, have special, uh, Sunday, uh, l- lower cost discounts to bring it, allow workers, laborers to come to the local fair, uh, or maybe, you know, to, you know, drive in, uh, drive in or take a train or a, tr- a streetcar from their neighborhood to the fairgrounds. Um, and get in at you know fifty uh, percent or something like that because um, they wanted they obviously understood that was key to the success uh, the economic success of hosting the, the event so there's two things here the success one is breaking even cost of the thing and the other one is how successful are we going to be Portland claimed uh, when it did a newspaper article a few years later you know I think it was five or ten years afterwards said well you know clearly look at all this the data. We're bigger. We have more banks. We have more clearings in our banks. We have more industry. We have more workers. Therefore, you know, 
cause and effect is hard to, yeah, I mean, I mean, that's, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. I'm sure it had some impact, but you know, in the end, you know, I, it's San Diego doesn't see the growth and it's world war two that makes San Diego what it is today. Uh, without world war two, San Diego is still 50, 100, 150,000 people. And that's it. I mean, at that point. And so, um, but, but I think the, you know, the, at least it probably helped dispel so images, uh, the negative images, the stereotypes of the region left people with, you know, a sense of maybe opportunities. They think, I mean, you know, particularly for the California ones, I mean, San Francisco has nothing to really well, promote about itself. It's, it's, a, it's a cosmopolitan city. I mean, it's, it's basically showing that we deserve where we are and why we're number one out here. And, and that's what they were trying to do. You know, San Diego's trying to say, well, we're kind of carve out something for us because LA is just, you know, kicking our butts. Um, the main railroads are going there. We're getting the spur lines. We're not getting the main railroad. And so, you know, for them, uh, it's a struggle. Uh, they, you know, they, you know, they, that's what part of the reason why they latched onto the Navy on that too. Here's a way to make sure we had some clean growth and too. And that's one of the things that's interesting. San Diego has this big debate called, uh, smokestacks versus geraniums, they called it. Because there was a debate in the community about what kind of San Diego do we want to be? Do we want to be Los Angeles with all these smokestacks and stuff like that? Or do we want to have a different kind? And the geraniums won out for the most part. I mean, it doesn't, San Diego to this day has limited industry. I mean, we, we were the eighth or ninth largest city in the country, but like 34th in market in terms of television markets or something like that. You know, we're, it's just the way it is. It's still a big city. Um, but it, it, it never developed certain kinds of things like it doesn't have a, it's not headquartered by only a couple of company, major companies, you know, uh, where some of smaller cities have multiple ones. So, I mean, so I think the success is, is limited. Um, but I think the, it leaves at least the locals feeling better about themselves. You know, they feel pretty confident, you know, whether their future will be what they want it to be and hope it to be, you know, only time would tell for them, but they, feel like, hey, we're on, we're here, we've arrived, we've been recognized, um, and uh, we're here to stay kind of thing, so. Well, cool, thank you. All right, so, so um, uh, one kind of tying up this one, so so you've, you've clearly already pointed at it, but I wonder if you can kind of uh, sum it up. How can your book help uh, readers better understand uh, the American West? All right, I think that a couple of things. I think that Obviously, it helps us understand, um, or our readers understand this this transition from the 19th century conquest of the West. You know, uh, where whites are moving, settlers are moving westward, and that. In a sense, it's really beginning the dawn of the modern West. I mean, and that's why we call it the New West. The Old West is the cowboy Indian West, um, and the you know the modern West, which will obviously be helped by other things like wars and, and that. Uh, air conditioning will obviously in the 50s and 60s help a lot too. Um, so it helps us understand the origins because as you mentioned earlier, some of those same themes and issues haven't changed. I mean, I, I teach a class on California history and I will, I'll take students, I read students a, a, actually a Chamber of Commerce brochure from like 1880s talking about San Diego. And then I take one from like a 1995, you know, local you know, publishing publication and they're virtually the same. I mean, great land, beautiful land, sunshine, unlimited, you know, sunshine with mild temperatures. And you're like, you couldn't tell what decade or what century it was written in. So part of that is there, um, uh, is there. But I think it also, because the expositions do, as I mentioned, 
they tell us about the Westerners themselves. Um, because what they promote, what they emphasize, what they market is things that they have recognized or they value is important to being in the American West um, and living here. Um, so they're not selling something that doesn't exist to them. You know, they're selling, and, and so, as some of scholars have suggested, really what they're also trying to do is justify their own difficult decisions, which is, hey, we moved here and it didn't quite turn out as we liked or we hoped so fast, but you know, hey, this is what we have and it's great. And so I'm gonna justify myself, you know, even subconsciously that may be going on. That'd be part of the story, which is, you know, they have to make themselves believe that the decision to move to Seattle in let's say 1901 is the same as it was in 1909. And, and, and so now they can kind of say, well, look at all the great stuff we have, we do your experience here. So I think it tells us a lot about the Westerners themselves uh, as much as anything. Cool. Well, thank you. So, so last one, we always end the podcast with this one. Uh, what's next for you? What are you working on right now? Uh, yeah, that's one of these photographs different. I see behind you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> if you see behind me, uh, it's, it is Star Trek. Uh, <laughs> um, as you enter your twilight of your career and you got tenured and promoted full professor, you're like, now what do I want to have fun doing? You know, and not to say I didn't love doing this research and everything, but uh, yeah, I, I am working on a project uh, looking at science fiction television in the 1990s. So I've kind of left the early 20th century. I, I considered myself a progressive historian, a Western historian. Um, I still teach courses like that when I do, but uh, my own research interests have kind of migrated to the latter part of the 20th century. You know, and um, looking at how, uh, you know, particularly I'm looking at three series: The X Files, uh, Babylon Five, and Star Trek's Deep Space Nine, which all began in 1993 on the air, and what they tell us about the United States in the 90s. You know, because one thing about science fiction, as we know, it often is really about the present, what's happening. It's the anxieties, the concerns, whatever they may be. And so I'm looking at things from everything from, you know, the rising, you know, X-Files and conspiracy theories. You know, this is when we begin to see these conspiracy theories really begin to develop and take hold in our country in some ways in the end of after the end of the Cold War. So the 90s is a very fascinating decade, it seems to me, because... It's one that we're only beginning to study now because you have the end of the Cold War, but you're not at the war of terror yet. You know, we got this like 10 year period in between. And on science fiction television, they're dealing with everything from cloning to, uh, you know, racial discord and other things that the country's dealing with. Um, and so I'm kind of looking at uh, popular culture now. No, yeah, that... <laughs> It's, it's very interesting. Like I end up uh, back when I was I was teaching for a couple of years before I got my current job as an Air Force historian, and and one of my favorite things to do was to use television or cartoons, you know, to to talk about, you know, like Bugs Bunny was my favorite thing to use to talk about, or you know, the World War II era, um, but because there's so much so much stuff in there with with issues of race and uh, gender roles, and just, just you know, the big three uh, class as well, and and so I could completely relate or understand that TV and especially one of my favorite things now that I'm getting drawn to is, okay, well, what were the nineties about, you know, and for someone who grew up in the nineties um, and watched X-Files, I didn't really watch, I watched some deep space nine. Uh, I never watched Babylon five, but it, it, at the time I just loved it. But as a story now, I watch it now and I'm like, Oh, that's a different message I'm getting than when I was, you know, 11 or <laughs> however old it was. Well, part of this led, in fact, I, I, I teach a class on Star Trek and American history here at San Diego State, um, and I've done it since 2008. And, you know, what drove me to teach, the, to develop the class was, again, 
I teach post-World War II America as just part of my usual portfolio of classes. And I thought, you know, um, as my interest in Star Trek had developed, you know, throughout my life and that, was um, how I could use it as another w tool to help students understand the times. You know, to, and, and I, could, I could give them a book or a newspaper article and something like that. But, you know, I was, you know, as a teacher, those don't always work anymore. So, um, so what Star Trek I did was to say, look, I'm going to do post-World War II America. But we're going to lose Star Trek as the window into this and the vehicle to look at this. So I, my class starts in the 60s and I say, OK, well, you know, what one of the big issues is race. Well, let's t I'll talk. I'll give a lecture on the development of civil rights and black power from 45 to 65. And I say, OK, Star Trek comes on the air right in the midst of all this conflict and turmoil over race. What is its message? What does it say about it? You know, and I show the famous episode with the black and white faces, you know, and on both sides and and help the students. We watch the whole episode and we look at the dialogue. And we talk about, you know, what was being said here. Notice the setting, the scene, how it was set up, but also, of course, the larger message. And do that for a variety of topics. And then they carried up to the latter part of the 20th century or 21st century. Look at, hey, how has race changed since the 60s? We get a black captain in Deep Space Nine. You know, couldn't have had that in 1966 when it got on the air. Um, we look at environmentalism, you know, big social and cultural issue that, the 60s don't touch, doesn't really touch on, but it's central to, uh, you know, the 90s when we have an Earth Liberation Front and eco-terrorism for the first time. And they have, Star Trek Voyager has episodes that deal with these themes. So it's another, just another kind of tool to kind of help students you know, see, again, that, that popular culture is a reflection of ourselves, you know, it, maybe what we would like to be in some cases, like in Star Trek, and what the future would hopefully hold. But again, uh, like any good science fiction, it's really about what's the present, what's going on at the time. So. Well, cool. Well, well, I'm not going to take up any more time, but I do appreciate uh, the time you gave me today. Um, it was a fascinating you, talk, and I, I look forward to uh, a, a 90s sci-fi themed uh, history book sometime in the future. All right. Thank you very much, Troy. All right. Thank, take care. Bye-bye.